0: Tonight is a real blockbuster subject. How and why was General George Patton assassinated? Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. There really is power in truth. The first casualty in war, it is said, is truth. My history teacher in Rhodesia, who is also a member of Parliament, Mr. Rhys Davies, taught us, beware the victor's version. Wartime propaganda morphs into peacetime textbooks. In Russia, under the Soviet Union, they had two newspapers. One was Pravda, and the other was Izvestia. Pravda means truth, Izvestia means news. And the Russians used to say to us, there's nothing true in Pravda, there's nothing new in Izvestia. And one example is, this is the poster child of communism. And the headline here in this Pravda was, thank you, comrade Stalin, for my happy childhood. Now, this girl might well have had a happy childhood because her mother and father were Communist Party members in the Politburo. But within six months of this picture being taken, her father was shot dead and her mother went to a concentration camp in the Gulag where she died within a few years of starvation. So this little girl was an orphan within two years of thanking Comrade Stalin for her happy childhood. She was the poster child of the Communist youth at that time. And that is the way communism is. They end up shooting their own people. Communism is cannibalistic really. The media is not a reflection of reality and in case you need some warnings, do you remember when the Charlie Hebdo massacres took place in Paris? And 25 heads of states led a million people in the streets of Paris to protest against us. And I looked at this and I thought, what a security nightmare. How on earth did the security manage this? Well, that's just what the pictures were showing. But this is what they didn't show you, is that it's a very small... Amounts of people who all screened and there's all the security folks all around. This is a photo op. This is there might have been a million people marching in, in Paris that day, but these leaders were not leading them. Now here's another picture of Barack Hussein Obama visiting Tanzania. Now just notice it looks see how the camera's crouching down to give the impression that there's this massive crowd of people, and there's President Obama unafraid for his life, happily walking in the crowd, shaking hands with everyone. But meanwhile, they're only three deep, and everyone's wearing the same outfit, same hats, same flags and all of this. And the security is immediately behind them on all sides. This is a screened group of people. This is a photo op. This is a complete misrepresentation of the position, and it's designed for propaganda. This is a renter crowd. Karl Marx declared the first battlefield is the rewriting of history. And they're not just rewriting history, they're rearranging reality. George Orwell once wrote, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. You can get into a lot of trouble these days telling the truth. If you want to anger a conservative, lie to him. If you want to anger a liberal, tell him the truth. Well, that brings us to the subject of tonight, General George Patton. He is a Cold War warrior who uh, was an enemy of the New World Order and probably the first casualty of the Cold War. George S. Patton was born 11th of November, 1885. Now 11th of November wasn't as significant a military date in those days when he was born, but it became so after the First World War. 11th of November is to this day the day for remembering soldiers who've died in the wars, and it's very appropriate that this ultimate warrior was born on 11th of November. He was homeschooled and that concentrated in classical literature. He didn't particularly like things like science and math, but he loved history and especially military history and classical literature, and he's very good at athletics. He is really, his whole family uh, was military, going back to the war between the states and the uh, American War of Independence. In 1903, Patton went to Virginia Military Academy, or Virginia Military Institute, VMI as I know it, but I've been here and spoken here too. Their uniforms haven't changed much in the last couple hundred years, and uh, the most famous... Lecturer and student at VMI was uh, Stonewall Jackson, General Thomas Jackson. And there's a lot of memorials for uh, the war between the states. In fact, Virginia Military Institute uh, students fired some of the first shots of the war. Patton was later admitted to the United States Military Academy at West Point, entering in 1904, United States Military Academy. In South Africa, ours would be Saldana, which General Mulder was once command of. You might recall that speech by General MacArthur, "Duty on a Country." Well, that's the motto of the Academy, "Duty on a Country." But, and that's in the stained glass windows in the chapel. Although this would not have been there when Patton was there, because Patton graduated in 1909. But nevertheless, he would have known those principles. "Duty on a Country" was the um, whole motto of West Point, and in. United States Military Academy at West Point still um, is a major place of training of the officers of the next generation. At one time, General Robert E. Lee was the only student who had ever graduated uh, without a single demerit. Interesting, uh, Erwin Rommel is also someone who graduated from his military academy without a single demerit. It's not possible for normal people to graduate from any place without a single demerit. So these must be an extraordinary people, Robert E. Lee and Urban Rommel. The barracks where they were trained, and again, the uniforms have not changed much in the last 300 years. Well, apart from his athletic achievements, Patton was a member of the riding, fencing, rifle, and track teams. In 1909, he was commissioned a second lieutenant, which is what we'd call graduation, but from there they have commissioning, in the 15th Cavalry Regiment. His wedding photograph, he didn't seem to smile much for photographs, not even for his wedding for picture. Well, in 1912, the Olympics were held in Stockholm, Sweden, and General Patton represented the United States in pentathlon in Stockholm, in Sweden, in the Olympic Games of 1912. And very different events those days. You look at the people sort of moving around in the track um, when it comes to Olympics today, and they're all taking selfies and a walk around in, in track suits. Well, people dressed up for the Olympics, and they marched in step. And uh, the discipline was quite evident. Well, Patton was part of this here. Um, you can see some pictures like Patton uh, doing uh, the. grieving. Uh, um, part of the leaping over the. what do we call this? Hurdles. Hurdles. And fencing. Patton on the far right involved in the modern pentathlon of the summer, the Olympics in 1912, uh, fencing. and he was very good at that. Pentathlon included the five classic military skills, horse riding, running, swimming, marksmanship, and fencing. In fencing, he came first, in riding third, and he rated overall fifth of the 43 international contestants. He could have won and should have won. But his shooting was so good, all five of his shots were within the whole of the bullseye, and the adjudicators assumed he must have missed Uh, the board completely in two shots now his shooting was so good they later dug out all five shots uh, from behind the bullseye and discovered that they'd um, uh, misjudged us but he is such a gentleman he didn't complain he didn't uh, throw a tantrum like the so called sportsman of today he just accepted it and that meant he wasn't first uh, because he counted how you play the game is more important than whether you win or not after touring Europe, he returned to America as a weapons instructor at the cavalry school and designed a new saber, which was adopted for service, called the cavalry saber 1913. But since then, it's been called the Patton saber. And he did steeple chasing. In 1916, he was posted to Texas and took part in the Mexican War as aide-de-camp to General Pershing. At this time, Patton began to wear two revolvers on his belt, so like a Western six shooter, and. These are some of his actual revolvers that he was using during the Mexican War. And they were fighting against the Mexican revolutionary Pancho Villa, who was at one time a friend of Pershing. Here's 1913, Pancho Villa happily meeting with General Pershing at Fort Bliss in Texas. And it doesn't look like they're that awkward about being together. But Pershing was tasked with a, a son of hunting down Pancho Villa, which he failed to do. But the Americans marched a lot of kilometers or miles failing to find Pancho Villa. And Patton is here as part of, the chief, uh, part of the staff of Pershing and the headquarters in Mexico, the kind of vehicles they were driving around in. Well, on 14th of May 1916, Patton encountered three mounted bandits, shot two of them dead, and returned <coughs> to HQ with their bodies draped across the bonds of his car like uh, some trophy. One of the dead bandits turned out to be General Cardenas, who was chief of staff of Villa, And uh, he could have gotten a big reward, but being a military man, it was not considered that he should get any reward other than a salary. Well, in May 1917, America went to war in Europe and Patton sailed to France in command of Pershing's headquarters detachment, but requested transfer to a combat post. And he was assigned by Pershing to establish the tank corps. When Patton accepted the posting, he didn't join the tank corps. He was the tank corps. America had no tanks at all, um, and here's Lieutenant Patton with first of two of these two-man Renault tanks from the French. He learned to operate them, and then he trained other Americans in this totally new martial art. I mean, he had been trained in cavalry riding and sword fighting, and now he's got to train people in tanks. And there was a lot of logistical complications in France. Now a major pattern manager field, 144 renal tanks at the Battle of St. Mayel, September 1918, which, whether by good intelligence or by sheer luck, coincided with the Germans having a planned withdrawal. They were going to withdraw from the salient to a better prepared front line to consolidate the uh, front line and present less targets to the enemy. You don't want to be able to be fired from three directions. So Uh, The Americans advanced at the very time that the German units were withdrawing. And therefore, they were able to make a big propaganda thing that they'd gained so much territory and had the enemy on the run and all that, which wasn't true. But it made great propaganda. So American troops went into battle in the forest of Argonne in these Reynolds FT-17 tanks. And Patton was a key part of this, leading the tank corps. He was wounded in this action and hospitalised for the last days of the war. And so great propaganda about how they could take so much territory, but in fact, um, that's just because the line was being consolidated and reconciled. As a temporary colonel at Camp Mead in 1919, immediately after the war, between the war years, Patton continued to pioneer tank warfare in the American army, and in doing so, he learned from Erwin Rommel whose books became the textbooks. Not sure why the computer's not being responsive. Like the whole thing's gotten slowed down. Okay, what's the problem? Some of the American tanks, in fact, uh, there's some stories of how um, Adolf Hitler was Uh, in stitches looking at some video footage, film footage of the American uh, chaps driving around there with trucks with tank posted on the side saying tank and they were using cardboard cutouts and they didn't have enough real tanks to practice with and uh, that looked hilarious but of course they did have the industry to build lots later and uh, the Christie tank was an American design which was given to the Soviets to make the T-34 so the T-34 was an American tank design from Christie who made the Christie tanks in America, but uh, the Soviets benefited from them. For some reason, the US Army was not allowed to get those designs, which were superior to the Shermans. Here's one of the orders to Smith and Weston, very specific, um, where Patton's ordering uh, 357 Magnum. He got one of the first two 357 Magnums ever made by Smith and Weston, very specific uh, as to what type of specifications in his gun. And here's the example. The kind of these are walnut grips are being used on this occasion. Later, he went to ivory-handled grips. When somebody once asked, um, "Are those pearl-handled revolvers?" he said, "Only a pimp would walk around with pearl-handled revolvers." No, I've got ivory-handled revolvers. So, General Patton was not impressed that people think he had pearl-handled revolvers. And these were ones that he used: 38 and .357 magnums. General Patton thought so highly of Field Marshal Erwin Rommel. He kept a copy of Rommel's book, Infantry Tactics, near his bedside for nighttime reading. Infantry Attacks by Erwin Rommel, I've got that book too. Absolutely tremendous insights from the First World War. What Erwin Rommel achieved, interestingly enough, in the First World War, some of his greatest victories were against the Italians, who he would later be fighting alongside and for in the Second World War. But uh, he managed to scale huge mountain tops and outmaneuver the Italians. Uh, in the alps and win some amazing battles there Erwin Rommel uh wore out younger men half his age in skiing back when you didn't have ski lifts when you had to hike up the mountain before skiing down and he uh, had the men giving up after four skiing times up there and his officers all couldn't go any further but the older man was pushing him over and over Urban Rommel made the comment, sweat saves blood, blood saves lives, and brain saves both. And yes, better to lose sweat than training in blood and battle. And sometimes you've got to lose some blood to save lives. But careful planning can save both blood and lives. General Patton was recognized as the most ferocious general on the Allied side. Without a shadow of a doubt, he was the best combat general the Allies had. Known as the man who never lost a battle, the hero of North Africa and Sicily, Patton was temporarily relieved of command for slapping two uninjured privates convalescing in military hospitals. After distinguishing himself in North Africa, where the Americans in their first encounter with the Africa Corps got absolutely slaughtered, Battle of Kessling passed, the Africa Corps wiped the floor with him, and uh, it was such a shock uh, that they had to call up Patton who was not that popular to salvage the situation. He was the first American general to be able to win any victories because the others had been quite disastrous, to be honest. He distinguished himself in North Africa, but he engaged in a contest against his arch rival, the British Field Marshal Bernard Law Montgomery. My father was under Montgomery in the Eighth Army. And here you can see the stiff kind of, you can almost see the animosity between Montgomery on the right and Patton on the left, with with, uh, Omar Bradley being like the referee in the middle and uh, while they could shake hands for the cameras, uh, the hostility between them was quite intense. As it was said, two prima donnas contesting for the same media coverage. Well, Patton, uh, in, on the road to Messina, distinguished himself by being utterly ruthless. He was so determined to get to Messina before Montgomery, he pushed his men beyond the limit. And he took dangerous tactical chances. He took major risks. But he got to Messina first so that when R- Montgomery got there, He was welcomed by the uh, Star Spangled Banner music and the uh, drowning out the British music. And uh, the Americans were right there in the city square with their flags taking a salute. And uh, Montgomery felt very much upstaged. Well, while visiting a field hospital in the crags of the central highlands of Sicily, Patton went from stretcher to stretcher. And there was a lot of casualties. And he was encouraging the wounded soldiers being treated. And Patton really did care about his men. And he was often visiting the sick in the hospitals. He encountered a private, Charles Cool, who was sitting obviously uninjured on a stool. Why are you here? The general demand? I guess I can't take it, sir. The general was furious. You coward, he bellowed. Leave this tent at once. And as Cool remained motionless, unresponsive to the general, he slapped him across the face with his gloves. And he then lifted the man off the stool by the collar of his uniform, shoved him towards the exit, kicked him in the rear. So said, you hear me, you yellow bastard, you're going back to the front. In his journal that night, Patton wrote, if men shirk their duty, they should be tried for cowardice and shot. Now, he was from a generation where they'd come under shell fire and you took it. He didn't understand or believe in this newfangled disease called shell shock. Now, today we speak about post-traumatic stress syndrome, but he knew nothing of that and he wouldn't have recognized it, even if he did. And the idea was, People who claim to have shell shock and are not injured and they're in the hospital are a bunch of malingering cowards. That was the thought at that time. And two days later, he wrote a memo to each of his commanders, ordering them not to allow men suffering from so-called combat fatigue to receive medical care. Such men are cowards, and they bring disgrace to their comrades, whom they heartlessly leave to endure the dangers of battle, while they themselves use the hospital as a means of escape. You would see to it that such cases are not sent to the hospital." Well, on 10th of August, Patton encountered a 21-year-old private, Paul Bennett, who was shaking from convulsions and in tears, but apparently uninjured in a field hospital. "It's my nerves, sir," I can't stand the shelling anymore," he says. And Patton roared, "Your nerves, hell! You're just a goddamn coward!" And as Bennett began sobbing, the general slapped him. "Shut up! I won't have these brave men here who've been shot see a yellow bastard sitting here crying." And the general hit him again, and Bennett's helmet fell to the floor. You're a disgraced army. You're going back to the front to fight. You ought to be lined up against a wall and shot. In fact, I ought to shoot you right now." And Patton pulled out his ivory-handled revolver from his hostel with his right hand, while he backhanded bent across the face with his left hand. And the medical staff rushed in to intervene, and ushered the private out of the tent for his own safety, because they really feared that he might shoot him right there and then. Well, when word reached General Eisenhower, who, by the way, had never seen combat, Eisenhower was a major when the Second World War got up and running for the Americans, and he was at a cocktail party in Washington, D.C., and the daughter of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the President, was speaking to him and said, just a minute, Dad must uh, meet you. She went and met her father as the President and said, I found the man who can run your war for you in Europe. And Major Eisenhower went to four-star general, just like that, in a few hips, hops and skips, and... uh, he was a political general. In fact, when, when Eisenhower's biography was written, the title of the book was "The Politician." Many people thought him as the military man, but he was not a combat soldier. He was once the clerk for uh, General MacArthur, and so when Eisenhower ran for president, someone asked MacArthur, a journalist asked him, "Do you think that Eisenhower will make a good president?" And MacArthur says, "Yes, he'll make a fine president. He is the best clerk I ever had." And. Uh, I mean, that's the point. He wasn't a soldier's soldier. Eisenhower was a political appointee. And Eisenhower wrote a stern rebuke to General Patton, calling him despicable. And he ordered General Patton to apologize, and General Patton apologized to the soldiers and to medical staff who had witnessed his actions. An immediate campaign now in the US led to such public outrage that the American Congress called for Patton's immediate dismissal. Now remember, the Congress at that stage was overwhelmingly Democrats, And despite his tremendous achievements on the battlefield, being the only American general who had brought them any victories so far, uh, he um, they wanted him dismissed, court-martialed, kicked out of the military. And in fact, the description here, despicable. As Patton said, the first time in his life anything he'd done had ever been described as despicable. And his private Charles Cool, who was slapped by Patton, gained notoriety and Uh, milked the media for all it was worth, made himself quite a fortune by being the soldier who was slapped by Patton, instead of being ashamed of it. Patton wrote in his journal, it's sad and shocking to think that victory and the lives of thousands of men are pawns to the writings of a group of unprincipled reporters and weak-kneed congressmen. But so it is. And this is a man who led American troops in battle the most effective often from the front, at a time of tremendous war and threat, and yet they were willing to just discard the man who later enabled the Allies to break out of the Normandy beachhead where they were absolutely pinned down. They didn't let him take part in Normandy beach landings uh, because of the slapping incident. And, in fact, he's used for deception because German High Command couldn't believe that America would sideline their best general and uh, that they were really going to leave the Normandy landings in the hands of... Um, the people who were actually responsible for it. And uh, so they used Patton for distraction to um, lead the fictional army that was meant to invade Calais. And in fact, uh, that never was the plan at all. That was just a uh, fabrication. And he's the one who saved the U.S. Army in the Battle of the Bulge in Belgium where Montgomery's men got into such a mess. And Patton took his army right from the French-German frontier in Alsace-Lorraine and did a 90 degree turn and moved hundreds of kilometers north in order to salvage the army who were being destroyed around Baston. And so he was, without a doubt, the best general the Americans had, and yet they were ready to destroy his career back in 1943 because he slapped some malingers in the uh, uh, tents. That's typical of the way politicians are. It's not just today. They used to be like that before too. General Dwight Eisenhower ordered the four million Allied soldiers in Germany to halt on the west bank of the Elbe River, 60 miles short of Berlin, to enable the Red Army to seize the German capital because that was what had been agreed at Yalta with Stalin. And Patton was seized with fury. Some of our leaders are just damn fools who have no idea about Russian history. Hell, I doubt if they even knew that Russia just less than 100 years ago owned Finland sucked the blood out of Poland, were using Siberia as a prison for their own people. How Stalin must have sneered when he got through with them at all those phony conferences, which is a pretty accurate assessment. Let the Russians take Berlin as folly, declared Patton. We should push on as far to east as possible. We shouldn't stop before Moscow. The Soviets maintained a stranglehold in East Europe for 45 years. Millions of civilian refugees fleeing towards American lines were turned back at bayonet point and forced to stay in the Soviet zone. Millions end up as slave labor in Soviet concentration camps. So at this point, we need to introduce you to Wild Bill Donovan and the OSS. The American president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, turned to one of his classmates from Columbia Law School, Wild Bill Donovan, to establish the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, which became the precursor to the CIA. Donovan was a communist, like the wife of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he staffed the OSS with communists. The OSS did the dirty work of assassinations on FDR's instructions. FDR was impressed with SOE, Special Operations Executive um, of Churchill, the School of Ungentlemanly Warfare, who set Europe ablaze, and it was modeled on him. Now, a Special Operations Executive was modeled on the Irish Republican Army such as a terrorist operation, assassinations of soldiers off-duty, murders of all sorts, bombings, even in neutral countries like Spain, Switzerland, and Sweden. There were all kinds of um, dirty tricks being done by the OSS. And Donovan ensured that Tito's communist partisans, who were waging guerrilla warfare in Yugoslavia, received lavish quantities of American tanks and trucks and jeeps and hundreds of tons of armaments, ammunition, landmines, and heavy machine guns. And here's Marshal Tito on the right who became the dictator of Yugoslavia for years later, head of the so-called non-aligned movement, but of course he's always a communist. OSS um, trained people throughout Yugoslavia and they, they ignored the nationalists and they supported the communists consistently on all theaters of the war. The undercover battle led by Donovan Knows ensured that Eastern Europe fell into the hands of the Soviet Union. They continually supported Soviet-inclined communist partisans to the detriment of others. General Walter Beadle Smith wrote to Winston Churchill that Donovan was out of control with a predilection for political intrigue. Donovan reported only to the President of the United States. He wasn't answerable to the high command of uh, the US Army. And the OSS was such a band that they, I mean, here they are like, is this Tonto and the Lone Ranger wearing these black masks? But I suppose anonymity. They might have worn uniforms for the pictures, but uh, they didn't wear uniforms in the field. They were effectively terrorists or guerrillas, saboteurs. And the uh, OSS was basically a dictatorship. And they did some training in uniform. But by the time they got to the field, they were not wearing these masks. They weren't wearing uniforms either. And Donovan's here in the middle with his people um, preparing them to go and help the communists in China, the communists in Yugoslavia, wherever the communists They were helping them the Special Operations Executive of the British um, committed 16,000 sabotage and assassination attacks during Second World War, bombs and landmines and derailing trains and so on. OSS only did 12,000 terrorist actions, uh, so not quite as much as the SOE. But together, they did far more terrorist actions than Hamas and PLO and ZANU, ZANPU, and ANC combined. If you take all the terrorists we've faced in our lifetime, they couldn't compare it to the amount of destruction, death, and murder, and mayhem done by SOE for Britain or OSS for America during the Second World War. They really pioneered terrorism and gave the example. And after the Second World War, OSS turned into the CIA. And Donovan had no moral or ethical qualms about dealing with communists. He channeled millions of dollars to the Chinese communists in Mao Zedong to fight against America's official ally, Nationalist China, under General Chiang Kai-shek. And they did a lot of work in China. They equipped the Chinese guerrillas of Mao Zedong. And Donovan had a secret slush fund, which he didn't have to account for. Uh, Congress provided, but he was not answerable to anyone for how he used it. And he could use it the way he liked without any regard to legality or oversight. The money was meant to cover far-flung spy and sabotage operations throughout Europe and Asia. And under the authority of FDR, Wild Bill ordered many political assassinations. Well, on the 17th of April, Patton's single-injured L-5 Sentinel propeller plane was attacked head-on by Spitfire bearing British Royal Air Force markings. Now, despite Patton's L-5 being an unarmed staff plane with plainly American markings, I mean, you can tell that is an American staff plane, the Spitfire fired its whole nine yards. The whole nine yards is all the ammunition I had on the wings, nine yards of ammunition, Traces flying past the sides of Patton's aircraft as a pilot took evasive action. Despite the maneuvers, the British uh, fighter plane crashed into ground, and the general was nagged by question, was the Spitfire attack an accident, or was it a deliberate assassination attempt? The next question is, who? Did the Royal Air Force try to assassinate him? Was this an MI5 OP, or SOE, or was it the Soviet operation? Because Britain gave a 1,000 Spitfires to the Soviet Union, and it would have been very easy for them to paint it in Royal Air Force markings. And Britain also gave 3,300 hurricane fighters to um, the Soviets. So yes, it could have been a Soviet NKVD operation, but it might have been an 6 operation too, planned by SOE to assassinate uh, General Patton. And Patton wrote, let us keep our boots polished, our bayonets sharpened, and present a picture of force and strength to the Soviets. This is the only language they understand and respect. If you fail to do this, I would say to you that we have lost the war. Even the British Field Marshal Montgomery agreed with Patton's assessment and ordered his troops to stack the Wehrmacht rifles in the prison camps in such a way that they could be easily distributed should the British and Germans need to defend themselves against a Soviet attack. Army intelligence warned General Patton his life was in danger from the NKVD, which later became the KGB. Marshal Stalin ordered Patton to be assassinated, highest priority for the NKVD. General Patton opposed the official American policy of forcing millions of former German soldiers to be sent as slave laborers to Russia. These men should be re- used to rebuild their own country, Patton said. The entire country had been bombed into rubble. And yet, German prisoners of war were being treated badly, not in accordance with the Geneva Convention. And the roads, the bridges, the plumbing systems all need to be rebuilt. 63 cities in Germany had been bombed into rubble. Two million civilian deaths as a result of the Royal Air Force and US Army Air Forces bombings, thousand bomber raids, incinerations, collateral damage, saturation bombing of cities. Uh, this, by the way, is um, Lubeck, and uh, Mrs. Scarborough was married in the ruins of this cathedral that's seen here, just was still in ruins in the 1950s when she was married. Um, multiplied millions of people without homes, and Patton said the Germans are the only decent people left in Europe. It's a choice between them and the Russians, and I prefer the Germans, he insisted. General Robert E. Lee, another graduate of West Point, said, any army that wages war against defenseless civilians, no matter what its excuse, is no army, but barbarians unworthy of the name Christian. Now, he's referring to General Grant's um, feds, the Union force in America who waged war against uh, civilians in uh, south of America, such as the Mo- Sherman's march through Georgia, which was basic terrorism. They disburnt churches. They murdered civilians. Horrific abuse. But what he said about the Union forces, the Yankees, would be just as true about what the Allies did in the Second World War as well. Waging war against civilians is terrorism. General Marshall ordered that Patton's phones be tapped, and he requested a psychoanalyst from the Navy's medical corps to observe General Patton. And Eisenhower wrote scathingly of Patton, regarding him as loose cannon because he distrusted the Soviets. Why would you distrust the people who've killed hundreds of millions of their own people? Why would he distrust the communists in the Soviet Union? So there must be something psychologically wrong with him. Let's have a spider on And while Bill Donovan traveled in and out of Moscow, had direct access to Marshall Stalin. And while Bill Donovan loathed Patton. So no Soviets in the Politburo could just walk into Stalin's office unannounced or without an invitation. But Donovan, the head of the OSS, he could walk into the Dachar, the um, the office, the private sanctuaries, the holiday home of Stalin any time, uh, day or night, and he did. So isn't it interesting that he had better access, the head of the American OSS had better access than the head of the NKVD or the chief of the Soviet Army or any member of the Politburo or General Zhukov. The OSS and NKVD cooperated and in exchanged information. They helped one another in espionage projects, including spying on General Patton. They. Cooperativeness. OSS agent Duncan Lee was assigned to spy on General Patton when he was military governor of the US occupation zone in southern Germany, Bavaria. He provided regular reports on Patton's movements, he recorded his um, office through wiretaps and his phone. Now, Duncan Chaplin Lee was the confidential assistant to Major General William Donovan, the founding director of OSS, basically his number two man. Duncan Lee was proven to be a double agent also working with the Soviet spy agency the NKVD. Duncan Lee provided the Soviets with advanced warning of the D-Day landings and exact location atomic bomb research in the United States. So when President Truman decided to impress Stalin at Potsdam with, we've developed a nuclear bomb Stalin could say, I know all about it and uh, trumped uh, um, the American president right there. Duncan Lee was later summoned before the House Un-American Activities Committee. And uh, Elizabeth Bennett, who used to be a a Soviet spy, she identified um, Duncan Lee. He's giving her the evil eye. You can see him staring without any love or appreciation to her from behind. And uh, she identified him. He was a Soviet agent all the way along. So the number two-man OSS was a straightforward NKVD agent, although I don't know that his boss was any better. And uh, they could be call, calling him a very principled boy um, in his biography. And here's his ID card from aiding the Chinese communists. Now, Stefan Bandera is a hero in Ukraine. And Stefan Bandera defected to Americans and informed the U.S. Army Counterintelligence Corps, Stefan Skubik, that the Soviet high command has been ordered by Marshal to kill U.S. Army General George Patton. And Bandera was the deadly enemy of Stalin uh, and Lenin. Rather than being shocked by Skubik's news, Donovan ordered Bandera to return to the Russians, thereby silencing a the man who was warning about an attempt on General Patton's life. And Bandera was murdered. A veteran of wartime Ukrainian insurgency army, the UPA, um, holds up a portrait of Stefan Bandera, one of the martyrs of the war against the Soviets. and they. Brought out a stamp commemorating 100, 100 years of his since his birth uh, in Ukraine. Not that longer. Ukrainian diplomat Professor Roman Smalstocky said the NKVD will soon attempt to kill General George Patton. Stalin wants him dead. Professor Smalstocky was expelled by the Russians from Germany and betrayed back into the hands of the NKVD in Russia. Again, death sentence. Ukrainian General Pavlov. Shundrook informs Special Agent Skubik that he had vital intelligence. Please tell General Patton to be on his guard. He is at the top of the NKVD list to be killed. The Americans also portrayed this General Shundrook into the hands of the NKVD, so he is also killed. So it makes you wonder, when I was in uh, Jamba, headquarters for uh, Jonas Savimbi in Angola, he said it is better to be America's enemy than America's friend. If you're America's enemy, you will probably be bought. But if you're America's friend, you'll certainly be sold. And that was Jonas Finby's quotes on the whole situation. In Berlin, Patton learned that more than 20,000 American prisoners of war who had fallen into Russian hands at the end of the war because they were in prison camps in Prussia and eastern Germany. uh, These might have been American pilots, bomber pilots who were shot down or maybe some of them were captured in the Battle of the Bulge. And uh, so these prisoners were... Liberated by the Soviets, but they weren't liberated. The Soviets just kept them in the prison system now as leverage, as hostages in the negotiations with the Allies. And the, Stalin was using these American prisoners as hostages to ensure that the Americans guaranteed all 3 million Russians, Ukrainians and other East Europeans in West Europe be forced across the border into Soviet hands. So to get your 20,000 men back, you've got to betray 3 million. And that was men, women and children. Uh, including Russian and Ukrainians, Latvians, and Lithuanians who had volunteered to fight for Germany against the Soviet Union, but also include women and children, many of whom had never even been alive in Russia. They had been born in Europe. Their parents had fled from the Bolshevik Revolution. And so the Russians denied the Americans and the British access to their prison of war camps where their own men were being held, and the Allied government suppressed this information that their men were being held hostage by the Allied Martian Stalin, Uncle Joe. And uh, some of the Russians captured, uh, and every Russian soldier who was captured as a prisoner of war was considered a traitor by the Soviet Union. The death penalty was given to any Russian soldier who had surrendered. And therefore, when they came back, they weren't treated as returning veterans or heroes. They were either shot out the hand, which most of them were, or they were shipped off to Siberia to work as slave labor in the concentration camps. All three million Russians and Ukrainians in Western Europe were betrayed into the hands of the Soviets. Operation Keelhaul, they called it. And absolutely shocking, this was suppressed for 30 years. I remember reading the story, The Last Secret, which it isn't The Last Secret, they said 1975, when Operation Keelhaul was uh, declassified and released. Well, General Patton knew about all this, and he insulted Soviet Marshal Zhukov, and Patton publicly stated the Soviets were the real enemy. Patton became convinced the only way he could speak freely about these issues was to resign from the military, not retire, but resign. So I can go home and say what I have to say. He saw his battlefield as changing. He was still a warrior, but now the podium and the pen would be his main weapons to expose the treachery of the US government and the danger of the Soviet allies. As he said, I'm going to open up a second front against the real SOBs uh, who are our enemies, which is the government in Washington DC. So the original Russian collusion was Stalin, FDR, and Churchill. They were the original Russian collusion, which they've been accusing Donald Trump of, although there was no evidence for it. But these great heroes were the original Russian collusion. They betrayed millions of innocent people, Christians in many cases, into the hands of the Soviets for mass murder and slavery at the end of the Second World War. So that is real Russian collusion. With 18 divisions and more than half a million men under arms in the Third Army, this was the largest US fighting force in history. And Patton was convinced he could have freed all of Eastern Europe if Eisenhower had not halted his supplies and fuel. In fact, he was liberating Czech Slovakia. People are welcoming him, and you know we're free. And then he was ordered to withdraw and hand him back to the Soviets. So, so much for the poor freedom that the Czech Slovaks have been given by the Third Army. Uh, sorry, Stalin gets you. and. At the end of World War II, America's top military leader, Combat General George Patton, accurately assessed the shift in the balance of world power which the world produced. He foresaw the enormous danger of communist aggression against the West. And his daughters ensured that his letters and speeches were published in the Patton papers, which uh, showed that he saw the real problem that Second World produced is it had removed the main opponents of communism. Germany in Europe and Japan in Asia were stopping the Soviets and the communists from expanding. And now America has removed the main enemies of communism. And now the Soviet Union is going to be the main winner of the Second World War. And he believed that America should act immediately against the Soviet threat. Unfortunately, his warning went unheeded. He is quickly silenced by a convenient accident, which took his life. Patton warned America should act immediately, while his supremacy was unchallengeable to end that danger. America was the only member of the nuclear club at that stage, and America had unprecedentedly large Air Force, Army, um, Navy, massive amounts of uh, aircraft carriers, and they could have taken the Soviet Union, he believed. In the terrible winter of 1945, the US Army had just completed the destruction of much of Germany. Thousand bomber raids, saturation bombings of cities, absolutely plastering cities with incendiary bombs, killing civilians by the hundreds of thousands, like in Dresden, destroying the railways, the bridges, the plumbing, uh, everything necessary to sustain life. Obviously, people are starving all over Europe because of the entire infrastructure has been destroyed. And here you can see Stars and Stripes boasting about this. And they even speak here about terror raids, terrible bombings and terror raids in the newspaper articles. Bremen being left ablaze in a 1,000-bomber raid. And this is the video footage you can actually see at the British and Imperial War Museum in London, uh, Dresden burning. The f- flames went so high that planes uh, could not fly at the planned 18,000 feet. They had to go higher than that because the flames went up to 18,000 feet. And the entire city ablaze, one big hospital city, refugees fleeing the Red Army from on the Eastern Front, Dresden was one big hospital city, a cultural city, no military targets of any significance, and the Allies bombed it on, not just on Valentine's Day, but the British bombed it at 10 o'clock at night with 700 aircraft, and then with a 1,000 bombers at 2 o'clock in the morning when the people were trying to clear the rubble and care for the um, injured and wounded. And then the Americans came in daylight with another 1,000 bomber raid and not only bombed the people, but their planes were coming in, strafing civilians who were trying to flee with carts and uh, literally shooting up the people on the ground. So it was directly targeting the civilians. And this is some of the video footage or film footage they've got of the burning of Dresden. That's a real Holocaust, burning people alive. And the U.S. Air Force literally fired on people on the ground, civilians fleeing the bombed city. David Irving made his name as a historian by producing the book The Destruction of Dresden, later reprinted as Apocalypse 1945. The Allies set up a government of military occupation amidst the ruins to rule the starving Germans. And you can imagine how people were traumatized after 1,000 bomber raids. And there was over 60 bombing raids just on Berlin alone. And people must have been not just physically uh, crippled, but mentally harmed from this trauma of these bombings. And seeing your entire family wiped out I don't think any country has ever suffered as Germany did uh, during the Second World War. And After it, and now the Allies dealt out victors' justice to the vanquished. Never before seen that you put your defeated enemy on trial for war crimes and hang them. Well, now Patton is the military governor of southern Germany, and uh, he is responsible for most of Germany that's under American control. And it was only in the final days of the war, and during his tenure as military governor. That he got to know both the Germans and the Americans gallant allies, the Soviets. And his understanding of the true situation grew, and his opinions changed dramatically. And his diary and letters were published in 1974 under the title of Patent Papers. And in his diary, to, which includes letters to family, friends, and military colleagues, and some government officials, he expressed his new understanding and his apprehensions for the future. Several months before the end of the war, Patton began to recognize the fearful danger to the West posed by the Soviet Union, who had been receiving vast amounts of aid uh, during the war, so called Lenleys, billions and billions of dollars of high tech weaponry, thousands of tanks, millions of shells, billions of rounds of ammunition, vast amounts of technological uh, transfers, aircraft, tanks, trucks, jeeps. You just can't believe hundreds of thousands of trucks. Can't believe what the arsenal of democracy did to help the worst dictatorship in history. He bitterly disagreed with the orders that he had been given to hold his army back to allow the Red Army to occupy vast stretches of Germany, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Hungary, Yugoslavia, which Americans could have easily taken, he said. And yet Churchill and Stalin had agreed no, but that goes to the Soviets. In this ridiculous meeting in 1942, Winston Churchill said to Joe Stalin, can you forgive me for the things I've said? about you. And Stalin said, it's not for me to forgive, it's for God to forgive. I mean, can you imagine what a conversation like this an atheist like Stalin speaking about it's for God to forgive. I think what he means is, you know, I don't forgive. But this is another way of him putting it. But for Churchill, the leader of Britain at that stage asked the Soviet Union to forgive him. Unbelievable. Yalta promised so much, but it betrayed people. And Stalin what do you think he's thinking of, of Churchill at this stage? I'm sure he had nothing but contempt for these fools in the West. As, as the communists said, we spit in the faces of the capitalists and they call it Jew. The capitalists will sell us the rope with which we will hang them. What they didn't realize is they'd give them the rope free and then put their own heads on the noose. United, we are strong. United, we will win. Look at the Soviet flags right there next to Nationalist China, America, Britain. Norway. And look here, South Africa's way down at the bottom. But Soviet Union, right up there, Britain, America, you know, we're, we're at the very bottom of the list. But we provide a lot of people for this war as well. And Truman and Stalin um, agreeing with the redistribution of land and redistribution of land in the east to the Soviets and the Soviet puppets. President Truman was outmaneuvered by Stalin. Stalin was far more intelligent than him. But I don't think he was a traitor like um, FDR. FDR was just a straightforward, hardcore traitor, whereas Truman was just a fool. On the 7th of May 1945, just before the German capitulation, Patton had a conference with US Secretary of War Robert Patterson. Patton was gravely concerned about the Soviet failure to respect demarcation lines separating Soviet and American occupation zones. He was also alarmed by the plans in Washington for the immediate demobilization of much of the US Army. Let us keep our boots polished, our banners sharpened, and present a picture of force and strength to the Red Army. This is the only language to understand and respect. (laughs) Patterson said, George, you've been so close to this thing for so long, you've lost sight of the big picture. And Patton said, I do understand the situation. The Soviet supply system is inadequate to maintain them in a serious action such as I could put to them. They have chickens in a coop and cattle on a hoof. That is their supply system. They could probably maintain themselves in the type of fighting I could give them for five days. After that, it would make no difference how many millions of men they have. If you wanted Moscow, I could give it to you. They lived on the land coming down. There's insufficient left for them to maintain themselves going back. Let's not give them time to build up their supplies. If you do not, then we've had a victory over the Germans and disarmed them, but we failed in the liberation of Europe. We've lost the war. Indeed, the Berlin Wall and Iron Curtain stood as evidence that the Allies did lose the war. They betrayed Europe into the hands of the Soviets. Patton's urgent and prophetic advice went unheeded by Patton and other politicians. And only he served to give warning about Patton's feelings to alien conspirators, as he called them, behind the scenes in New York, Washington, and Moscow. The more he saw the Soviets, the stronger Patton's conviction grew the proper course of action would be to stifle communism there and then while a chance existed. He attended civil meetings and social affairs with the Red Army officers and evaluated them carefully. He noted, I've never seen in any army at any time, including the German Imperial Army of 1912, as severe a discipline as exists in the Russian army. The officers, with few exceptions, give the appearance of Mongolian bandits. Patton's aide, General Gay, noted in his journal, everything the Russians did impressed on the idea of cruelty. Nevertheless, Patton knew that the Americans could defeat the Reds then, but perhaps not later. As he said, in my opinion, the American army as it now exists could beat the Russians with the grace of ease because while the Russians have good infantry, they're lacking in artillery, air, tanks, and knowledge of the use of the combined arms. Whereas we excel in all three. If it should be necessary to fight the Russians, the sooner we do it, the better. If we have to fight them, now is the time. From now on, we will get weaker, and they will get stronger, which is exactly true. Having recognized the Soviet danger, Patton urged a course of action that would have freed all of Eastern Europe from the communist yoke with the expenditure of much less American blood. Then was spilled in the wars of Korea and of Vietnam, and would have obviated both of those later wars. You wouldn't have had a Cold War if you'd had no Soviet Union. You wouldn't have had the wars in Angola, or Mozambique, or Rhodesia, for that matter. All the wars in South West Africa, Korea, Vietnam, none of them would have been necessary. The massacres in Cambodia wouldn't have happened. Patton next came to evaluate the nature of the people for whom the Second World War was apparently fought, the Jews. Most of the Jews, forming over Germany immediately after the war, came from Poland and Russia, and Patton found their personal habit shockingly uncivilized. Like the way how they would treat um, previous prison guards and. The brutality of, for example, the massacres of prison guards at, uh, uh, in this case, this was done by the Americans at Dachau. And these weren't the prison guards. These were a unit that was just given the task of looking after the camps and handing them over to the Allies while the actual prison guards fled. The Americans got there. They didn't care about the fact they just lined the people up against the wall and shot them. And this kind of savagery uh, that uh, Patton witnessed, he was disgusted by the behavior in the camps for displaced persons or DPs, which Americans built for them, even more disgusted by the way they behaved when they were housed in German hospitals and private homes. He observed with horror, these people do not understand toilets, and they refuse to use them except as repositories for tin cans, garbage, and refuse. They decline to use latrines, preferring to relieve themselves on the floor. He said, although Rome existed, the Jews were crowded together to an appalling extent. In every room, there's a pile of garbage in one corner, which is also used as a latrine. The Jews were only forced to desist from their nastiness and clean up their mess by the threat of the butt ends of our rifles. However, it's my personal opinion that this, too, is a lost tribe. I know the term, the lost tribes of Israel, applies to the tribes who disappeared, not the tribe of Judah from which the current SOBs are descended. But it's my personal opinion this, too, is a lost tribe. They're lost to all decency. And Patton's initial impressions of the Jews was not improved when he attended a Jewish religious service at Eisenhower's insistence. His journal entry reads, this happened to be the feast of Yom Kippur. So they were all collected in a large wooden building, which they called a synagogue. It behooved General Eisenhower to make a speech to them. We entered the synagogue, which was packed with the greatest stinking bunch of humanity I've ever seen. When we got halfway through, the head rabbi, who was dressed in a fur hat, similar to that worn by Henry VIII, and a surplus, heavily embroidered, very filthy, came down and met the general. The smell was so terrible that I almost fainted. Actually, about three hours later, I lost my lunch as a result of remembering it. These experiences and a great many others firmly convinced Patton that the Jews were an especially unsavory variety of people and hardly deserving all the official concern of the American government was pouring out on him. Another diary entry, following a demand from Washington that more German housing be turned over to Jews, he summed up his feelings. Evidently, the virus, started by and Burrack, of a Semitic revenge against all Germans are still working. Harrison of the US State Department and his associates indicate how they feel about German civilians, that they should be removed from their homes for the purpose of housing displaced persons. There are two errors in this assumption. First, when we remove an individual German, we punish an individual German, while a person is not intended for the individual. Furthermore, it's against my Anglo-Saxon conscience to remove a person from their house, which is a punishment without due process of law. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike, on abomination to the Lord. And here's Ilra Ehrenberg, who's a Soviet commissar, and he had a simple slogan, kill the German. And they ordered the Soviets, before the Red Army went into Berlin, you know, kill, rape, murder, humiliate, you know, torture. This was the official instructions from the commissars. Now, the French weren't much better, sadly speaking, in France, they, the so-called resistance, who didn't really turn up until after D-Day, um, they picked on any French girls who had fraternised with the enemy, so-called, and dated a German soldier or something like that. And here you can see these poor girls fingering their hair because they're about to get shaven brutally in public. And the mistreatment of anyone who is deemed a collaborator was quite callous. You can just see the attempt to humiliate the people and to... Um, You know, literally, why would you do this to people? This is not the way you treat even your enemies, but this is civilians. And so here, um, a whole lot of political prisoners are forced uh, into small areas. In the second place, Harrison and his ilk believe that a displaced person is a decent human being, which he is not. This applies particularly to the Jews whose behavior is lower than animals. And he's referring to, I'm sure, those who are into the pornography and the other things. And he was horrified at the burning of churches and other revenges that he saw being taking place at that time. One of the strongest factors influencing General Patton's thinking on the conquered Germans was the behavior of the America's controlled media towards him. At a press conference in Regensburg, immediately after Germany's surrender, Patton was asked whether he was going to treat captured SS troops differently from other German prisoners of war. And his answer was no. SS means no more in Germany than being a Democrat in America. There's no reason for trying someone who's drafted this outfit. In fact, the SS was overwhelmingly a foreign legion. It was because foreigners who wanted to join Germany's war against the Soviets, against communism, couldn't join the Wehrmacht, but they could join the SS. So the Waffen-SS grew with tens of thousands of Frenchmen, and Norwegians, and Swedes, and even Swiss, and South Africans, and Spaniards. There was even some Americans and Brits in the SS. Uh, Danes, there was vast amounts of people from all over Europe, especially Belgians and uh, Dutch. So the SS was the foreign legion, the first NATO force, so to speak, uh, because they were fighting against the Soviet Union. And uh, the SS was part of Operation Barbarossa, 2,900 kilometer front with over 600,000 motor vehicles, 750,000 horses, and they were seeking to liberate Russia from communism and end the Soviet threat to Europe the biggest operation invasion in history, Operation Barbarossa. Now, with great reluctance and only after repeated promptings from Eisenhower, Patton threw some German families out of their homes to make room for more than a million Jewish DPs. As he said, part of the famous six million, which supposedly had been gassed, but he balked for an order to begin blowing up German factories to accord with the infamous Morgenthau plan to destroy Germany's economic basis favour. He said, I doubted the expediency of blowing up factories, because the ends for which the factories are being blown up, that is to prevent Germany from preparing for war, and they had already blown up and burned so much of the country anyway, this can easily be attained through the destruction of the machinery, which has been confiscated and shipped to the Soviet Union anyway, while the buildings could be used to house thousands of homeless people. So in his letter to his wife, he wrote, I'm frankly opposed to this war criminal stuff. It's not cricket and it's somatic. I'm also opposed to sending prisoners of war to work as slaves in foreign countries. For example, in the Soviet Union's Gulags, where many will be starved to death. In fact, the vast majority did. Do you know vastly more German soldiers died after the war in prison camps than died during the war in action on all fronts? I mean, that's just staggering. And vastly more German civilians were killed um, during the war than German soldiers were killed during the war. And vastly more German civilians were killed after the war than even died during the war, during the bombings. That's how bad it was. And 15 million Germans were kicked out of their homes and forcibly repatriated, the biggest forced removals in history, expelled from different parts of Russia, some even expelled to Kazakhstan, I see, and uh, from Romania, from Hungary, from Czechoslovakia, from all over, and vast amounts of Germans in East Prussia, where they'd lived for centuries, forced out to give that to Poland, because Russia was stealing a third of Poland. And to rehouse the Polish people, they had to steal a third of Germany or or Prussia, I should say. And German refugees fleeing the Red Army, um, of course, when they got the American lines, they only turned back anyway. But the amount of people fleeing what they knew would be a fate worse than death at the hands of the Red Army. And so the attempt to flee the depopulation and the forced removes were shocking. Nearly half of these refugees died due to cold starvation disease, It was the worst winter in memory, the winter of 1945. And labor camps in the Soviet Union, there were tens of thousands of people dying every week in these concentration camps in the Soviet Union. 50 million people died in the Soviet gulags, according to Alexander Solzhenitsyn's um, estimations. And he can see women forced to dig canals by hand and being used like mules to pull these um, ferries, not ferries, what do we call these? uh, Barges, the barges along the canals. Men being forced to go into the salt mines and just look at the weight of those wheelbarrows and look at the incline going up an incline at that steepness with wheelbarrows that heavy. Can you imagine? Men, women forced to be slaves in Stalin's concentration camps, in the Arctic hellholds of the Gulag. Absolutely staggering conditions. And the Arctic hellholes, the Gulags of the Soviet Union, some of the worst places human beings have ever been forced to endure. And vast parts of the Soviet Union were given over to the Gulag, as uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn documented. If you've read The Gulag Archipelago or One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, gives you a bit of an idea of just how horrific it was and the vast amounts of people murdered. Professor Rommel of uh, death by government documents 62 million people killed in the Soviet Union. Um, in fact, it's estimated by Alexander Solzhenitsyn 66 million people, mostly Christians, killed by the Soviet Union. As Joseph Stone said, the death of one person is a tragedy, but the death of a million is just a statistic. Communism kills 100 million killed in the 20th century and still counting. Communism is not over yet, especially in the Soviet Union. So the ideology that killed over 100 million in the last century is now being praised at universities today. And you've got people like Bernie Sanders um, trying to promote a new form of communism in America today. And Biden, of course, trying to push his own brand of it as well. And in Zimbabwe, they're still trying to push a brand of communism. Displaced persons, in many cases by horse carts and ox carts, refugees all over Europe. I mean, can you imagine the amount of lives destroyed by this hideous war and the aerial bombardments? And these are children starving in Austria, and children forced to sift through dustbins. My mother, as a 12-year-old, said the first um, black man she ever saw was a Canadian soldier who put a band at her throat in the basement and was trying to kill her. And uh, Fortunately, she was rescued by an officer who kicked him off. And she was living off scraps in uh, dustbins in British and Canadian camps, going to the dustbins after uh, suppers and picking up what they could. They're living in the forest in the worst winter imaginable. Kicked out of the home. Canadians took everything in their home up to the top and smashed it, cutlery, even a grand piano. Just wanton destruction because they'd been so pumped full of propaganda. They just demonized their enemy, even the civilians. And uh, yes, people were starving over Christmas in 1945. And yet the Red Cross said they had 18 million food packages they wanted to deliver to Germany. And Eisenhower refused to allow them to cross into uh, American-controlled Germany to distribute these food packages. The Red Cross had had access to all the prison camps and concentration camps throughout the whole war on the German side. They could deliver food parcels. They could do vaccinations. They could help. They could take. Um, all kinds of information, including letters to and from prisons in every prison camp, but the Americans wouldn't allow them to do it, and uh, Eisenhower referred, preferred people to die of starvation in his camps and his area rather than let the Red Cross come in and help them. And so the destruction, absolutely huge and horrific. Despite his agreement with official policy, Patton followed the rules laid down by Morgan Thur and others as closely as his conscience would allow, but he tried to moderate the effects, and this brought him into increasing conflict with Eisenhower and the other politically motivated, ambitious generals who had probably never heard of shot fired in anger, who weren't combat generals but were political appointees. In another letter to his right, he commented, I've been in Frankfurt for a civil government conference. If what we're doing to the Germans is liberty, then give me death. I can't see Americans can sink so low. It is Semitic, I'm sure of it. Today we received orders in which we were told to give the Jews special accommodations. If for Jews, why not Catholics and Mormons? We were also turning over the French several hundred thousand prisoners of war to be used as slave labor in France. I recall that we fought the American War of Independence in defense of the rights of man and the Civil War, apparently to abolish slavery. Now we've gone back on both principles. We're going back to slavery, and we're not respecting the rights of man. It is an abomination to, for kings to commit wickedness, for a throne is established by righteousness. His duties as military governor took patent to all parts of Germany, and he was intimately acquainted with the German people in their condition. He couldn't help but compare them to the French, the Italians, the Belgians, and even the British. This comparison gradually forced, gradually forced patent to the conclusion that World War II had been fought against the wrong people. And he pointed out the Germans were the most advanced highest standard of living, uh, these are some pictures of Germany before the war, and they led the world in technology, they led the world in standards, and during the Olympic Games of 1936, the jealousy just grew, and you could tell there was desire, we've got to destroy this country. It's been too, the standards of living is too high uh, for the common working people, and the technology, the inventions, they even at colour TV at the 1936 Olympics, The standard of living, um, the uh, culture, was something higher than anywhere in the Western world. And so uh, this is a country without the Rothschild Bank and where uh, they had real money with real value. And so the idea was, we've got to destroy this country. After a visit to ruin Berlin, he wrote to his wife, Berlin gave me the blues. We have destroyed a good race, and we're about to replace them with Mongolian savages. All of Europe will be communist. And these are just some pictures taken by the air, by the US Air Force of Berlin, 1945. One smoking ruin. 60 aerial bombardments by 1,000 bomber raids. 60,000 bomber raids. No city in history has been subject to this sort of thing. All the men were slave laborers in the Gulag, or in France. And so uh, the old people had to rebuild the city, brick by brick. It said that for the first week after they took Berlin, all the men who ran were shot, and those who didn't run were raped. I could have taken Berlin and of the Soviets had I been allowed to. And there's some horrible documentation of the gruesome harvest and the lives of people absolutely shattered. James Bach of Canada documented the, in Crimes and Mercies how vastly more civilians died in Germany after the war than they died during the war, even from the bombings, and how most of the prisoners died after the war, um, far more than soldiers died during the war. 2 Chronicles 19, verse 2 said, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. If you want to know why the West in a mess today, look no further than the Second World War. The conviction that the politicians had used him and the U.S. Army for a criminal purpose grew in the following weeks. And during a dinner with the French General Alphonse Juin in August, Patton was surprised to find the Frenchman in agreement with him. He was head commander of the French Expeditionary Corps, Alphonse Pierre Juin. And he said, it's indeed unfortunate, mon general, that the English and Americans have destroyed in Europe the only sound country, and I do not mean France. Therefore, the road is now open for the advent of Russian communism. Later diaries and entries to his wife reiterated the same conclusion. He wrote in August 31, actually, the Germans are the only decent people left in Europe. If it's a choice between them and the Russians, I prefer the Germans. And you just think of what they had achieved, and the accomplishments and the culture, and uh, what a magnificent country it was before being bombed and destroyed, and what that achieved in the Eastern Front, and the decency of many of the soldiers as well on the ground. He wrote, what we are doing is to destroy the only modern state in Europe so that Russia can swallow the whole. And the occupied zones of Germany, um, you can see patent control the US zone here at one stage, and uh, the French. The British had different zones. Marshal Zukov and General Eisenhower, they were pals in many ways. Eisenhower, Patton, and President Truman at the Berlin flag raising ceremony. Berlin itself was divided into four. Has any city ever undergone this kind of treatment? The bombing, the looting, the raping, the division, the Berlin Wall Iron Curtain, the Nuremberg uh, Kangaroo Court. And in the officers. German officers imprisoned in violation of the Geneva Convention in these open tanks. This is in France. No no roof, no protection from rain, snow, cold, or anything like that, just metal um, drums, and uh, the uh, guards walking on the planks above. And the abuses, so bad. James Bach created a sensation of his book, Other Losses, where he showed how more German soldiers died in prison camps after the war including in American prison camps, then in combat during the war. And the treatment was absolutely horrific. And the Rhine Meadow camps, where Eisenhower had whole armies just in a limited area, barbed wire put around them, they were given no tents, they weren't given any bungalows, no facilities, Uh, they were just having to eke out some existence uh, on the ground uh, behind barbed wire, and not given enough food or water People shot if they tried to get to the Rhine River to get some water. And civilians trying to bring them food or water were shot. And sometimes you just had these thugs guarding the camps, opening fire with machine guns into the prisoners at night just to kill some people so that they could feed some kind of Mm -hmm. bloodlust. Absolutely no um, decent treatment of these people. Literally, um, soldiers who just would every now and then as guards on duty would shoot into the mass of prisoners behind the barbed wire who had nowhere to flee. And this mistreatment uh, is documented by James Bach and Other Losses, which we've got in the library as well. By the time the morgan thirst and the media monopolists had decided Patton was incorrigible, and he must be discredited because he's speaking out against these things. So they began a nonstop hounding of Patton in the press, a la Watergate, accusing him of being soft on Nazis and continually recalling the incident in which he had slapped a shirker two years previously during the Sicily campaign. You know, all the millions of people have died in the war and they're still talking about a general slapping some soldier who was uh, malingering in a tent when he wasn't injured. A New York newspaper printed a completely false claim that when Patton had slapped the soldier, who was Jewish, Private Cool, he had called him a yellow-bellied Jew. He'd called him a yellow-bellied coward. He didn't know what uh, race or religion he was at that time. Then in a press conference on 22nd of September, reporters hatched a scheme to needle Patton into losing his temper and making statements that could be used against him. And the scheme worked. The press interpreted one of Patton's answers to the insistent questions why he was not pressing the Nazi hunt hard enough. This Nazi thing is just like a Democrat-Republican fight. The New York Times headlined that quote. Other papers picked it up across America. And the unmistakable hatred, which had been directed at him during the press conference, finally opened Patton's eyes to what was afoot. In his diary, he wrote, this is a very apparent Semitic influence of the press. Synagogue of Satan, indeed. Karl Marx was a Satanist, and seems a lot of the modern characters are, too. They try and do two things. First, implement communism, and secondly, to see that all businessmen of German ancestry and non-Jewish antecedents are thrown out of their jobs. They've utterly lost the Anglo-Saxon conception of justice, and feel that a man can be kicked out because somebody else says he's a Nazi. They were quite shocked when I told them I would kick nobody out without a successful proof of guilt before court of law. Another point which the press hopped on was the fact that we were doing too much for the Germans, instead of the DPs, most of whom are Jews. I could not give an answer to that one, because the answer is that, in my opinion, and that of the most of the non-political officers, it is absolutely necessary for us to rebuild Germany up now as a buffer state against Russia. Well, Germany always was the protection against the East to protect Europe from its eastern enemies. Now, they'd removed the strongest buffer. And of course, Austria was the protection against the Turks for many centuries. In fact, I'm afraid we've waited too long, he says. I'll probably be in the headlines before you get this. Unless we restore Germany, we will ensure that communism will take America. Eisenhower responded immediately to the press outcry against Patton and made the decision to relieve him of his duties. Effectively, Patton was sacked from being head of the Third Army and kicked upstairs as the commander of the 15th Army, which didn't exist. 15th Army was not even 50 people. 15th Army was basically a record facility for writing a history. And Patton indicated to his wife, he wasn't actually unhappy with his new son, He said, so I would like it much better than being a sort of executioner to the best race in Europe. He wrote a long letter to General Hubbard in the United States condemning the Morgan policy and blaming Eisenhower's behavior in the face of Jewish demands the strong pro-Soviet bias in the press, the politicization, corruption, degradation, demoralization of the US Army, which these things are causing. He saw the demoralization of the American army as a deliberate goal of America's enemies. I've been just as furious as you at the compilation of lies which the communist and Semitic elements of a government have leveled against me and practically every other commander." And Patton and Omar Bradley, Patton and Truman, <coughs> Eisenhower and Omar Bradley putting a bronze cluster on the lapel of Lieutenant General Patton. 22nd of October he wrote a long letter back to General Haberd um, saying that this policy is demoralizing the army and Henry Morgenthal was Secretary of the Treasury top advisor to President Roosevelt formulator of the notorious Morgenthau plan to destroy Germany to cripple Germany, to kill millions of people Morgenthau was the author of the infamous Morgenthau plan to wipe out the German people by mass starvation, which they almost did 1945 to 1950. Hideous plan, and he saw this, deliberation, this deliberate policy of demoralizing the army as a way to bring about a deliberate alienation of the soldier vote from the commanders. Because the communists know soldiers are not communistic. They fear what 11 million votes of veterans would do. And so he said that um, his plans were to fight those who were destroying the morale and integrity of the army, endangering America's future. He said, it's my present thought that when I finish this job, which will be around the first of the year, I shall resign, not retire, because if I retire, I'll still have a gag in my mouth. I should not want to start a limited counterattack, which would be contrary to our military principles. I should wait until I can start an all-out offensive, as he said against the real SOBs in Washington, D.C. Unfortunately, his warning went unheeded, and he was quickly silenced by a convenient accident which took his life. It happened like this. The collision occurred on 9th of December, 1945, when a two-and-a-half-ton army truck, which had been facing uh, the general's car parked on the side of the road, roared into life and violently collided with the general staff car suddenly inexplicably careening directly into opposite lane and into Patton's vehicle. The actions of the truck driver seemed designed to intentionally kill or injure the general because the driver of the truck and his two passengers quickly vanished. No criminal charges were ever filed. No accountability was ever recorded. The official accident reports and the key witnesses went missing. That's why we read it earlier what Jesus said in John 8:32 you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. We've had so many lies fed to us, especially about the World Wars. Interesting, in the Central Intelligence Agency's headquarters in Virginia, as you enter, they've got on a wall, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, which I don't think the CIA would know the truth if they stepped on it. Despite General Patton's rank and fame as America's most audacious, successful combat general, There was no formal inquest. All official reports on the incident vanished. The military police, when they first arrived in the scene of the accident, Lieutenant Peter Babalas, that's an interesting name, um, he treated the accident like a fender bender. Although Patton's driver testified that the truck driver and his passengers were drunk, Sergeant Robert Thompson's blood levels were never tested. He was never charged with driving under influence. Thompson's illegal possession of the Signals Company truck also went unquestioned. Despite the fact that he is 60 miles north of his duty station, with no apparent reason for being in Mannheim, an army you're not meant to be just taking a truck without permission and going, uh, I mean, it's AWOL. More than AWOL, it's theft. Thompson's drunkenness, negligence, and apparent larceny went unquestioned. I mean, he's just killed, or begun the process of killing, America's top general, and there's no consequences. Numerous investigations and authors have attempted to find the official accident reports unsuccessfully. Sergeant Robert Thompson and his two friends, who were responsible for plying their truck into Patton's car, were flown to England by army intelligence. Why would they get such treatment? However, just four days after the collision, Thompson mysteriously reappeared in Germany, where he spoke to an American journalist, and he claimed he was alone in the truck when it struck Patton's car. But both General Hobart Gay and Private Horace Woodring, the driver, swear that there were two other people in the truck with Thompson. Private Horace Woodring, a 19-year-old son of a dairy farmer in Kentucky, grew up racing cars and flying stunt planes, and Patton spoke highly of him as his trusted driver. Now, Woodring was driving just 20 miles an hour when Robert Thompson swerved the military truck hard to the left, driving his vehicle directly into the path of Patton's Cadillac. There was no turning on the road in the direction he was pointing his vehicle. He didn't signal before taking action, so the action seemed deliberate. His nose... Well, the nose of General Patton broke. He felt a sharp pain in the back of his neck. No sensation in his lower body. And instantly, General Patton knew he was paralyzed. He was the only person injured in the collision. General Patton was paralyzed in his vehicle accident on 9th of December in 1945 at 11.45 a.m. He arrived at the U.S. Army Hospital um, in Heidelberg uh, almost an hour later. There was no medical staff waiting at the hospital to rush Patton's surgery, No team of spinal specialists assembled to deal with a life-threatening traumatic injury. But two days later, his wife Beatrice and a spinal cord specialist arrived to be at his side. He's from a very wealthy family and they had connections. The doctors were confident that General would survive his injuries and might be able to regain some mobility. They were also convinced he'd be able to travel soon. General Patton urged his wife to get him out of the hospital. They're going to kill me here, he said. Now she thought he was just being irascible, typical... Uh, the way he was, uh, but it all took on a greater significance later. There was no autopsy. Um, he didn't recover. On 21st December 1945, General Patton's body was wheeled down to the makeshift morgue in a hospital basement, announced to the journalists that General Patton had died, even though it was expected by the specialists he was going to survive. No autopsy, and although Beatrice wanted him buried at West Point, the army insisted he must be buried in Luxembourg. Neither General Dwight Eisenhower nor President Harry Truman attended the military funeral for General George Patton, America's most famous, most decorated, and accomplished combat general. In fact, there's not that many people in, in his uh, service. There's a lot of empty pew space here. So this is America's most famous general's funeral um, in Luxembourg. And where's the American high command? Where's the American president? In fact, even his grave is very humble. It's very um, simple. It doesn't say much. George S. Patton Jr., uh, General yeah. Third Army, California, December the 21st, 1945. That's it. General Patton had made many enemies, high-ranking enemies: Moscow, Berlin, London, Washington D.C. And his fiery determination to speak the truth had made many powerful men squirm, not only during the war but after the war. His public statements praising the German army. For their matchless skills as fighting men, the best army in the world, and criticizing the Soviet Union as the real enemy of freedom, led some to see Patton as a threat to the New World Order. He didn't accept this demonizing of his enemy or of um, hero-worshipping the Soviet allies. The Red Army uh, might have had propaganda on their side, but he knew them as a bunch of savages. In fact, in Berlin, the statue to the unknown soldier for the Red Army soldier, is to this day still known as the statue of the unknown, the unknown rapist. And that's the way they look at the Red Army. The Soviet Army uh, killed more people than any other forces in the the Second Second World War than in all the 20th century. More Christians have been killed by the communists in the Soviet Union than by all other forces combined in the 20th century. And remember, more Christians have died in the 20th century than all previous 19th centuries combined. Communism has been the greatest taker of life in the 20th century by a long shot. And the rise of the Soviet Union, well, it started off with the First World War, 1917. And then we can see the main gains, uh, Second World War, getting to the top. And then, 1999, the collapse of communism. Considering what, in the face of evil, film documents of what the Soviet Union posed to the world Uh, Ronald Reagan's war against the Soviets. um, That would have been completely unnecessary if General Patton had been listened to, and if the West had not saved the Soviet Union and sent so much lend-lease to help them survive Operation Barbarossa. The agenda films also document well how communism is taking over the world uh, in the West. And even though people have rejected communism in the East, uh, what we have gone through as a result of this hideous policy of FDR and Churchill in the Second World War. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. From the beginning, many did not believe that Patton's death was accidental. He had already survived several remarkable accidents, including when his personal aircraft had almost been shot down by a British Spitfire April 1945 in a plainly unarmed American um, officer's plane, the L-5 Sentinel. Was this MI6 and RAF, or was this NKVD and the Soviets in those Spitfires? Sergeant Robert Thompson's military records were burned in 1973 with a fire swept through the National Personnel Record Center in St. Louis, Missouri, destroying 18 million official military personnel records. Lieutenant Bubbler's accident report also vanished. In 1953, a 1953, request for a copy of the report received the official response no, uh, noting, report of investigation is not on file. Casualty branches, no papers on file regarding the accident. There's no information on the accident in Patton's aide, General Herbert Gay's personnel file. The report organized by General Godfrey Keyes, Commander of the 7th Army, also went missing. In fact, the only report that remained in circulation was a document allegedly written in 1952, signed by Private Horace Woodring, Patton's driver, But when asked about this document in 1979, Woodring swore he had never made such a statement. He'd never signed his name to the statement. He believed the paperwork was totally fabricated. The vehicle on display in the Patton Museum in Fort Knox, Kentucky, has been proven to not be the vehicle in which General Patton was driving on that fateful day. The engine chassis numbers have been filed off as well. Why all this fraud? Who could do a cover up of this level? Woe to those who call good evil, uh, uh, who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who justify the wicked for a bribe, who take away justice from a righteous man. So, who killed General Patton? It's a mysterious death. And the damage done to the vehicle um, also doesn't explain why he died. And there's more to the story that needs to be made. General Patton's famous dog, um, who's even included in uh, some monuments to him, so General Patton's gravesite. By the way, the army would not allow his wife to be buried next to him. So um, family friends organized that her ashes be scattered around his grave. And so General Patton's dog's part of his monument in California. In 1979, OSS agent Major Douglas Bazzotta asserted he had been part of the hit team that was tasked to assassinate General Patton. Now, he didn't say this in an interview with some magazine. He said this at a get-together of hundreds of CIA and uh, OSS veterans from the Second World War in Washington, DC. And Major Douglas Bazzotta asserts in his public meeting in Washington, DC, to his peers, I killed General Patton. And uh, he was believed by almost all of his contemporaries. He said he had fired a low-velocity projectile on the back of the general's neck in order to snap it and cause him paralysis. When Patton failed to die and was showing signs of recovery, he was murdered in the hospital by Soviet NKVD agents who injected him with a poison. Bazata swore that Wild Bill Donovan, head of the officer's secret service, paid him $10,000 and gave another $800 in expenses for his role in organizing Patton's death. And what he had organized was, it was just after railway stopping. So the railway crossing, level crossing, the vehicle had to stop. And so it had to be quite slow from that point. And the, truck was parked at the other side, and so they knew it was in a narrow area. There's nowhere where the car could go, and the truck had a very specific place it had to connect, and Bazaar had made sure that the window was down and uh, could not be raised uh, on the general side, and then he was hidden behind a pile of bricks in Mannenheim, and he fired this projectile through the open window to crack the neck of uh, of. General, not enough to break the skin, not enough to cause bleeding, but enough to cause the damage um, that it would break his neck. Now they thought he might die from that, and when he didn't die from that in the hospital, then they organised for the NKVD to come in and inject him with poison. So, Douglas Bazata had been awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, four Purple Hearts, and Francis Coeur de Guerre with two palms. Later hired to work for the U.S. government as special assistant to the Secretary of the Navy. OSS agent Douglas Bazzotta wrote of his meeting at Claridge's Hotel London with Wild Bill Donovan. Douglas, I do indeed have a problem. It is the extreme disobedience of General George Patton and of his very serious disregard for orders for the common cause. Shall I kill him, sir? Bazzotta asked. Yes, Douglas, you must do exactly what you must. And this comes out of the book Target Patton, which is... Uh, documented the plot to assassinate General Patton. A lot of the information in this presentation comes from that book. William Colby, a former OSS agent who went on to become head of the CIA, praised Bazaar in his 1978 book, Honorable Men, just a year before Bazaar went public about the fact that I was part of the head team to kill General Patton. And the fact is, he was believed by his contemporaries who'd gone through the war, he'd also served under um, Donovan. And so the CIA headquarters in Virginia is also known as the Cloud. And some have come to recognize General Patton as the first casualty of the Cold War. Patton's insights and convictions were considered a threat to the new world disorder. We must hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the GATE. And because Patton was not willing to toe the line and go along with the whole trend of pro-Soviet globalism, uh, he was terminated with extreme prejudice, to use the American term. There's a book on Patton, First Victim of the Cold War, Silence Patton, uh, which came out in 2015. There's a film out on General Patton as well. Um, here's some of his qu- quotes. We herd sheep, we drive cattle, we lead people. Lead me, follow me, or get out of my way. If everyone is thinking like someone isn't thinking. A friend said to me recently, he spent a few years in Canada, and he said he's so disturbed, he said it's frightening. If you go to any... Bri in South Africa, if you've got 20 people, you've got 20 opinions. In Canada, if you've got 20 or 40 people, you still have only one opinion. Uh-huh. Said so In Canada, it's frightening. Nobody thinks outside the box. They're all just repeating what the government controlled media say. <coughs> Another quote on marriage. When a man gets married, he must be just as careful to keep his wife's love as he was to get it. It would be very sad for both of them if he said to himself, Now that I have you, I don't need to worry about losing you. Don't do that ever. Politicians are the lowest form of life on Earth. Liberal Democrats are the lowest form of politicians. You see why he's not exactly popular? It seems to me that certain of the fatalistic teachings of Muhammad and the utter degradation of women is the outstanding cause of the arrested development of the Arab. He's exactly as he was around the year 700, while we have kept on developing. A good plan, violently executed now, is better than a perfect plan executed next week. And uh, Patton film came out in 1970. No bastard ever won a war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor damn bastard die for his country. That quote was on a billboard in my 6th uh, Infantry Battalion training uh, around our parade ground, and so we saw that quote every day for months. And uh, somebody really liked General Patton. There was others. Better to lose sweat and training than blood and battle, and so on. The test of success is not what you do when you're on top. Success is how high you bounce when you hit bottom. Moral courage is the most valuable and usually the most absent characteristic in men. It's one thing to be physically courageous. I've heard, General, I've heard Colonel Breitenbach say that too. Many people can be physically courageous but they're moral cowards. He said it's important to be, moral, be morally courageous, to be willing to stand up against a high command and say you're wrong. But General Um, Patton certainly did, and which Colonel Batemuck did too. No sane man is unafraid in battle, but discipline produces in him a sort of vicarious courage. Accept the challenges so that you can feel the exhilaration of victory. We promised the Europeans freedom. It would be worse than dishonourable not to see that they have it. This might mean war with the Russians, but what of it? If we have to fight them, now is the time. From now on, we will get weaker and they will get stronger. America was at maximum mobilization in 1945. That was the time to fight the Soviets, not to let everyone go home first. Patton was a genius of war. He stands out as someone who went beyond knowing how to win battles tactically, but philosophically he held the attitude of a leader. But he was a straight talker who couldn't play the political game, and he paid a high price for it. General Patton was a prophetic voice during crucial moments of American history, offering a warning that had otherwise been silenced. You might be interested in the prayer that General Patton had um, printed up, prayer that was organized by his chaplain before the Battle uh, of the Bulge. Almighty and most merciful Father, we humbly beseech thee of thy great goodness to restrain these immoderate rains with which we have had to contend. Grant us fair weather for battle. Graciously hearken to us as soldiers who call upon thee that, armed with thy power, we may advance from victory to victory and crush the oppression and wickedness of our enemies and establish life justice amongst men and nations. I remember we had a practice in the South Korean Army of the officer commanding printing out a card with script on it before any cross-border operation. And uh, remember, we had, uh, uh, be strong, my son, you know, a soldier in active duty doesn't want to, um, want to please his commanding officer, does not get involved in the affairs of civilian life. That was on the card that was distributed to us, um, uh, up at six hour at one time. So this is a good tradition he started, printing a prayer and distributing it to his men. Patton wrote War is I knew it, and there are books on his army. Of course, there's his Patton papers, and uh, the unknown Patton, uh, Patton Museum in California, his medals. And there's even a tank named after Patton. Two tanks were named after Patton. Uh, his tank was the main uh, tank of the Cold War. And there's a film, uh, Patton, which uh, salute to a rebel, is actually pretty good as far as it goes. Um, it doesn't dare touch any of the controversies I've brought up now, uh, but uh, in fact, it ends the, the film before his assassination and uh, makes an allusion to it in a fraudulent way by having him escape a runaway vehicle that, that almost crushes him as he's walking the road. And he walks off into the uh, fields saying, You know, that would be a terrible way to end a uh, career of a warrior. Know, to a car accident. So that's about it in the film. The film kind of skirts over those issues. But uh, very well-made classic. T- Target Pattern by Robert Wilcox is the best expression I've read on the plot to assassinate General Patton. Not as effective as Bill O'Reilly's Killing Pattern on the Strange Death of World War II's most audacious general. This is um, a bit of a... It tries to avoid connecting the dots. It doesn't want to accuse the people responsible. And then the silence pattern film was uh, fairly good. I thought it could have been a lot better, um, exposing the fact that he spoke his mind and therefore he was silenced. Pat Buchanan's book, Churchill, Hitler, and the Unnecessary War, is another exceptionally good book that makes sense out of a senseless war. <coughs> Hess, Hitler, and Churchill, The Real Turning Point of the Second World War by, David, by Peter Padfield is another um, excellent book that helps one make sense of uh, the treachery of the Second World War. Max Hastings' book, The Secret War, forces you to rewrite every history book in the world because it shows the war from the perspective of the spies, the ciphers, the guerrillas, and the fact that the Allies had complete knowledge of the uh, German and Japanese uh, orders before, and orders of battle before any action. So the fact that they'd cracked the codes and the Enigma code been cracked, and uh, the uh, GCHQ uh, school and cipher uh, war. Uh, in Bletchley Park, all that was done. This changes everything. So many of these films that you've got in books where, oh, uh, you know, what's going to happen and all the tension, fraud. Uh, they they were reading the other side's uh, orders ahead of time, so they were in a very interesting situation. Max Hastings makes the point that the Allied commanders regularly blamed the intelligence officers that they'd been underestimating the size of the enemy. And he said, there was no underestimating, it was accurate, just as the German soldiers were better soldiers, they fought better, and one German soldier was worth more than two or three British and American soldiers, and that's just the facts. And he said that they didn't want to accept the fact that when we said the, the enemy's disposition was such and such, that it was true, because they put up such a better fight than you would have expected for that size. And then he also says, even though we knew the orders that Rommel was receiving, Rommel still outmaneuvered our people because Rommel didn't listen to headquarters. He would be told, don't advance, dig in, and then he would ignore that, and he would make an offensive when the Allies had read his orders, and they knew, ah, Rommel's not going to be making an offensive, so they were all um, unexpected when he suddenly charged ahead and took their positions. So Max Hastings exposes so much of the war, including the fact that the Soviet Union had double agents amongst the Germans to such an extent that there was tremendous treachery on the Eastern Front. And... Stalin actually had a double agent who was a treble agent. who actually um, They sacrificed hundreds of thousands of Soviet men, massive army, to consolidate his reputation that uh, he was um, reliable in order to set up Germany for the worst trap of all at Kursk, uh, which was the biggest tank battle in history. And that uh, nobody on the German side could imagine that Stalin would sacrifice hundreds of thousands of his own men just in order to gain a strategic deception of advantage. So the secret war is an extraordinary insight to what went on, and uh, I've given lectures on it before too. So it's so important that we know the truth. And truth may sound like hate to those who hate the truth, but it's essential that we learn the lessons of history to recognize the lies of propaganda. And we need to study the word of God so we can be freed from deception. You'll find on our frontlinemissionessay.org website articles and PowerPoints, audios, and videos of this presentation on um, General Patton and the plot against him. But I think this forces you to rewrite so much of history and rethink so much because the deceptions involved, as my history teacher said, but we're the victor's version. And there's so much lies and deceptions that have to be uncovered. Can you imagine one day in heaven when we get to understand what really happened? How many lies we'll realize that we believed? Lies on so many levels. History, Hollywood, all sorts of things, from medicine all the way through to um, uh, even science. I mean, there's massive amounts of lies. When it comes to war, there's a huge amount of deception. And Hollywood has really given people a false perspective of what was going on to such an extent. Stories like this just make you think, can you trust any government? A government that can, can murder its own hero, its most successful general at science, what can you say about a government like that? Can you trust them in anything? And you just think what the US government's doing right now. And uh, somebody said Zelensky should ask himself what's going to be done by, Jim by the Americans when they finish with him. They're using him now, but Zelensky's going to fail. And when he fails, what are they going to do with him? What happened to Saddam Hussein? What happened to, um, who was the chap who was Noriega in Panama? There's so many allies of America that get used, and at some point they're no longer helpful, and then they get retired uh, with extreme prejudice one way or the other. Any comments, questions? How many have seen the film Pattern? It's, it's a really good war film. Some said it's the best uh, role Georgie e. Scott ever f- f- fulfilled. And that's interesting, that George Georgie Scott is not a conservative, but he, he played the role of Patton so believingly, you'd swear that he was like that, but he's just a good actor. But uh, Georgie e. Scott said he doesn't actually... Um, like anything that Patton stood for, but he, he played the role in the film very effectively. Many Hollywood people, you might like their roles, but when you get to know what they're really like in real life, it's very disconcerting, because it's this somebody in Hollywood you respect. Normally when you find out what they really believe, you lose that respect. Exceptions being people like Charlton Heston, but that, that's rare, or Kirk Cameron. There's a few exceptions. Mel Gibson. Any questions? Complaints?
1: So this might sound like a dumb question. Um what was Hitler's objective? What was he he doing? Because I know a lot of German people um still were celebrating his birthday and I'm
0: revering him as the greatest leader. Well, what he said and what he did may be two different things, but what he claimed to want to do in Mein Kampf was to reverse Versailles, which was a treacherous and a counterproductive treaty, a vindictive treaty, and to regain for Germany what had been stolen from them by the Versailles Treaty. So that's what he claimed, and many people supported him because the Versailles Treaty was obviously unjust, and unfair, and millions of Germans were now under, for example, Polish and Czechoslovakian control, and righting the wrongs and being able to restore things was the way it was put forward. But, of course, politicians always have another agenda than what they will say. So I had my daughter asking me, how could um, an honorable man like Erwin Rommel have served uh, somebody like Adolf Hitler? And it was, well, understand what Erwin Rommel was doing was fighting for Germany against the Versailles Treaty. And against communism, and so he would have had his clear military objective and understanding. That doesn't mean he agreed with the political things. So, for example, when the order came from high command to execute commandos behind the line commandos, and uh, commandos had been even tasked to uh, to assassinate uh, Field Marshal Rommel behind the lines. Landed by submarine, came there. He treated them all very well. Uh, He he refused flat out the orders to execute um, commandos and those who work behind the lines and so on. So you often get a good commander that does not follow the political orders when it doesn't match with his uh, principles. Like Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee um, always was a principled man and he was once told uh, you shouldn't be giving the Yankees the same um, rations as your own men. And uh, they don't do that for confederate to prisoners of the Yankees and he said these are not your prisoners, these are my prisoners and they will receive exactly the same rations as our men and uh, he would not tolerate any breach of of gentlemanly conduct and chivalry. So a good general will be at odds with the political leaders, which is why General Patton was regularly at odds with his leaders. Eisenhower was not because Eisenhower didn't have any principles. I mean that's the thing, you get those who've got principles, those who don't. Any other questions? Uh, yes, often. you
1: briefly touched on uh, the topic of uh, Lager, yeah. which I understand I mean that was in the, in the US occupation zone right?
0: Yeah the Rhein-Miller camps uh,
1: and I mean I understand I mean I only learned about that I mean, growing up in Germany right? I only learned about that about a year ago nobody in Germany I mean like you we know, you obviously learned a lot about history I mean with all the guild complexes nobody ever heard about that I mean, I asked my father, I mean, who is today like 86 years, 87 years old, and not even he knew about it. I mean, and I understand, like, I mean, you mentioned more Germans died after the Second World War than during the Second World War, more soldiers in particular. I mean, there was like one or two million German soldiers basically starved to death. Is that right?
0: That's correct. <laughs> just on the ice now, just in the American zone after the war. That's not counting. The many more who died in the Gulag under the Soviets. Um, many, many. But just the Americans, who would have expected better. And the way how Eisenhower did this was he, he changed the definition. They weren't prisoners of war. They were disarmed enemy forces. And then he also didn't put them under death. He put under other losses. So he played a kind of accounting game to conceal it. And this James Bark, this French-speaking Canadian journalist, dug out these and he wondered, what is this other losses? 1.1 million, that's a lot of other losses. What is other losses? Turn out those were deaths from starvation or whatever else. And they weren't a prisoner of war. They were of disarmed enemy forces, DEFs. So they changed the category. And this is all part of Eisenhower trying to implement the Morgenthau plan to basically um, bring down the German population so drastically that they can never be a threat again. And it it was genocide. It It was absolutely murderous.
1: Evil, another yeah. evil crime
0: war. And now, Eisenhower, many people think of Eisenhower as, I like Ike, you know. Eisenhower's a nice person. And they think of him as a great general. But he was not a combat general. He wasn't the kind of person who waded into battle like Rommel or Patton. He someone who was behind, probably never got his his uh, uniforms dirty and probably never heard a shot fired in anger. So Eisenhower, his, his, um, we've got his biography in the library it's called the politician is quite it was not worthy of honour it's amazing how there was a time when people thought anyone who's a president of America must be an honourable person now I assume that most of them are really bad and there's only a few good ones, mm. Trump being one of the very few, but why did they hate Trump he didn't start a new war so Therefore, but the only president since uh, Herbert Hoover who didn't start a new war so no wonder they hate him He's going against America's big business, the thing that makes America so wealthy. They need lots and lots and lots of wars. You've got to bomb people to bring them to democracy.
1: Um, looking at the Germany at the time when it was at its strongest, before the war, it's quite amazing to see that those kind of pictures because you never get exposed to that. They yes. show you the, the radical marches and that, but you never get exposed to the, the unbelievable...
0: A technology and a high standard of living.
1: I mean that options. was better than the nineteen fifties USA. Yes. And so the thing that I the trend that I see is that there's this arrested development that seems to come from somewhere and it's been done to, to the entire West at the moment. So where we should all be living at this higher level. We we have suddenly no gas, no energy, no <coughs> electricity. No, oh, you know, like you can hardly get a, a, a decent car these days. Mm. Um, the railway systems are, are rubbish. China's got the maglev trains, but Europe doesn't. Even though the British pretty much pioneered that whole idea. Yes. Um, what, what's going on, really? Because okay, that's the Germans. they were these terrible people. But now I'm seeing, seeing, it seems to me that this the, the development Well, what, what they
0: did to Germany, they did to Rhodesia, they did to South Africa, they're betraying every country that makes a stand against communism and seeks to demonise us and crush us in one way or the other. Of course, economic sanctions is part of it, demonising in the media is another part, and then war, if necessary. You just think the high stands we had in Rhodesia, and then you compare it to Zimbabwe today, it's quite pitiful. But yes, Germany's uh, stands of living, you just think for the what they were doing for the common people uh, the strength through joy the Baltic cruise like um, holidays where people in the factories, the poor people could get luxury cruises and no country in the world had standards of living like that and this is why during the Olympics the strong resentment grew that this country must be destroyed and uh, what they had done at the Olympics in 1936, probably the greatest Olympics ever, the only ones that w- didn't end in debt. And uh, at that Olympics, which many people think now, the only thing that's happened at the Berlin Olympics is that a black man won a race, and yet Germans got 80 of the medals and they beat everyone hollow. The British, Americans and French combined didn't get as many medals as Germans, and they just showed themselves to be the, the fittest, healthiest people in the world, the stands of living. It was so well r- run. And again, you think of the technology uh, that was being used at that stage. The country had produced the jets, the rockets, uh, first helicopters, and so much else. And uh, this country's advancements were so high. Where would the country world be if that was allowed to develop
1: Absolutely. naturally? And also, the the Bible says, um, you must love your brother and forgive them seven times 70. And I understand that the predominant uh, makeup of America is actually German.
0: Am I, am, I, am I wrong? I don't know about pronounce, but it's one of the biggest single groupings. Okay. At one, one point, biggest... after the war between uh, Britain and America, war of independence, they were voting on whether English or German should be the national language of America. And apparently it was just a single vote that that uh, made them decide in English. Not that more than half the people were speaking German, but that there was such a lot of hostility for England that there was an idea of we are going to go the other way. Just like the British rode on the left-hand side of the road, so uh, America decided we're going to go on the right-hand side just to be different from Britain, change the spelling of things, and so they were actually thinking of changing the language to German, and it was seriously considered. And if America had gone to German language, they would have been culturally and linguistically more in touch with that side of the continent and would have been less likely to have joined Britain in a war. So. And also, that would have changed to, things too. To, to, to so
1: happily jump into tanks and ships and go over and kill their literally their brothers. Mm. You know, I mean, we're not even talking about a spiritual sense of we're talking like literally your brother and it's spiritual because they're yeah. Christian, they Christian. Protestant. What's going on? The world is absolutely
0: this is and a 80% of the population of America was anti war. And, uh, But the propaganda agency that changed them to the other way around, where they were lynching people for having a German name and beating up um, German uh, German shepherds and uh, sausage dogs and anything else like that, there's just the insanity. But that was Cape Town, too. You had butchers and bakers and um, German shop owners in Cape Town who were being attacked, burned out, uh, in Cape Town, 1914. Mm -hmm. There was that kind of just insanity. And you even learn, reading uh, the book on Uncle Olo's, um ancestors, how even in Natal, there was this prejudice that was just unleashed, the war funeral, where people whose ancestors had moved out there a century ago and had nothing to do with what was going on then, were being targeted politically. So you get that kind of attitude. Like right now, a Russian pianist or Russian um, tennis uh, champion contact in Wimbledon and so on, just because they're Russian. I mean, that, that kind of prejudice is just bizarre, but this is not unusual. This is the depravity of man. But it's also the power of the media, now that they can uh, demonize whole people if you're on the wrong side of some issue. I
1: also have a question about because um, you have national socialists in Germany, and it's always a difficult thing, you know, as socialism becomes demonized. And you have the Soviet Socialist Republic, the, the, the The Soviet Union, socialists—they're two socialists. They're both
0: socialists. So, what's really the big difference? Yes, well, I prefer Christian social, Christian nationalism, not socialism. I'd be opposed to socialism, no matter where it comes from, national or international. But yeah, Um, but I think the whole idea of national socialism—the original idea was that um, Germany was so threatened by communism. Remember, communism was such a threat. Even in 1933, 20% of the vote went to the Communist Party. So, communists were a major threat in Germany. And Hitler's this idea, and he was quite a genius in many ways, and as a designer, he designed this idea of the red flag, which to the white circle, and with a twisted cross, the Hakenkreutz, which is um, an Aryan symbol from the Hindus, interestingly. You can see it in some Hindu temples. And uh, the idea was to unite. The nationalists and the socialists together uh, to be able to stop the communists so this was the idea Um, obviously i think one shouldn't have anything to do with socialism i would have preferred a much better idea but that's that's what they chose and many people were excited about well they're fighting communism fighting communism was good so that's why many people would have been delighted remember 1930s were not that far away from 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution. People were horrified what happened in the Bolshevik Revolution. We don't want it to happen here. In South Africa, when we had an attempted Bolshevik Revolution up in the Midland and Bononi, Smuts called out the Air Force tanks. They bombed and shot and used artillery against the protesters who were starting a kind of red Bolshevik Revolution attempt in South Africa. They were the miners. Workers of the world unite for a white South Africa. And, uh, so much put the army and the air force in the tank corps against them, literally used artillery against demonstrators because of the fear of we don't want South Africa's fall to communism like the Soviet Union has destroyed Russia. So I think in Germany there was a lot of this fear after the. There were attempted revolutions in Berlin and in Bavaria, and Hungary fell under the communists for a short while, and there was a lot of death from this. And so you can imagine the people thinking we've got to stop communism. And When you get a big threat, people can overreact or be very in dangerous role, almost fall into a trap that they want to get you to fall into a trap. Like what I think is happening to Israel now. (coughs) Hamas wants to provoke a reaction, and they're getting that reaction. And it's exactly the reaction they wanted. But this is giving them the propaganda ammunition that they need, so it's all over the country and the world. People are protesting against Israel, genocide, things like that. Well, that's what Hamas wanted. They provoked, provoked, provoked in such a way and fooled themselves doing these atrocities to get Israel to react. And now they've got them where they want them. So I think Israel in some ways has fallen into a trap of Hamas. Or um, maybe they even... Some people think that this is what the Israeli government wanted. They wanted Hamas to be lured into doing this. So maybe Hamas fell into their trap to justify what their plan was to wipe out the Palestinians. So... I'm not too sure which side you can look at it, but terrorism is always to provoke reaction or overreaction. We've always got another context. There's always a context. And Patton was such a thinker, he read history so well, that he obviously looked around and he said, this is not right, this doesn't add up, we've been used. And so he uh, got himself such a position to think that your own government wants to kill you after you've served them faithfully, just because you're telling the truth. So, any other questions? Let's close and pray. Perhaps two or three would like to lead us in prayer, then I'll conclude.